Welcome to the Forging Honor Podcast. I'm Jonathan George. And I'm Benjamin Jones. Here at The Forge, we explore what it means to live as Christian men. Along the way, we'll be doing weekly challenges to build character through action. We are by no means experts, just two young Christian men trying to make sense of a wild world. That's right. We're doing our best to learn and hope you'll join us on the journey. And if you want to get directly involved, go to forginghonor.com to find information on how to join our community. This is episode 10, A Consumer Society. All right, challenge recap time. Uh, Just a reminder, challenges last for 10 days. That's Monday through Friday for two weeks. They are simple daily tasks to grow us as men. Um, And this previous challenge was to keep track of the ads that you see, especially the ads that work. Consider what you purchase and whether it had to do with an ad. So uh, focusing on on consumerism here, um, I accomplished five of the 10 days, although I definitely forgot to mark some days. I just uh, on our uh, Discord tracker. Um, so a little bit of forgiveness there, fellow hosts. <laughs> uh, Banjo had eight and Elias seven by my count on Discord. So correct me if I'm wrong on those, but um, seems like decent participation overall for or everyone except me here. Yeah. Um, I will say even on the days where I didn't actively sit down and go, you know, what ads did I see? That it was, I was much more conscious of the ads that were being shown to me. Um, so, uh, Banjo, what, what do you think of this one? Yeah, well, I mean, I was in a similar camp to you in some ways. I mean, it was the, the sheer number of advertisements that were, I think, exposed to in a 24 hour period makes it a little bit obscene to try and remember all of them. But I think I was just, I was really focusing on the ads that worked and that was really interesting, um, because I just realized how how many different kinds of ads there are. I think that was the, one of the bigger things that I that I picked up on is, I mean, when I think of an ad, I think normally I think of a commercial like on TV, but there's also, you know, a million on your phone. There's a million on you know if we're if we're listening to a podcast, there's a million of of ads that pop onto that. There's billboards everywhere, posters. Uh, movie trailers. I mean, it just went on and on and on. Um, and I, I, I realized, I think I, I don't know if you guys feel this way, but I feel like just in order to survive in, uh, in the, in the sort of hyper consumer culture that we live in, you just have to build some, at least some sort of a sense of like a wall between yourself and every ad. Uh, and, and, there was a real disconnect that I felt between an advertisement and the product. Um, there were very few advertisements that I looked at that I felt like, oh yeah, I would buy that product. Um, but the ones that that worked worked really, really well, which, which was a little, little scary. Um, Elias, how did you how did you feel about it? Were you able to do pay attention to a whole bunch of ads or? just a couple or how did you do it? Yeah. So the sheer number is ridiculous and I'm not even thinking about stuff like billboards. I mean, when was the last time you were driving and thought about a billboard? I'm just focusing on like social media, YouTube, Hulu, those types of ads that I'm seeing on my screen because those are the ones that I 
find I pay attention to much more often. And even there, I mean, you just scroll through social media and so many of the ads are trying to look like other social media posts. I mean, half the time you have to look down at the account like, all right, is this sponsored content? Is this actually an ad or is this somebody who's just chosen to look at this product and talk about it on social media? Yeah, it does feel like there's there's a lot of um, a lot of content out there that it got, they're like sneaky ads. Yeah, it's it's really something else. And I wasn't always great about using my journal. And this challenge, I would say, has sparked a lot of thoughts in my head, but not a lot of takeaways. If that makes sense, I noticed a lot of things about the ads. I noticed especially how desensitized I was to them and how much I was just letting them pass by. But in terms of like things to do or things to make my life better or more productive in regards to ads, honestly, I don't even know what to do about it in that sort of a sense. What do I do with this information that I've accumulated over the course of these two weeks? Well, it- I think it's it's good awareness, and I I think we could also start to un, unpack it a little bit uh, by going back to the conversation. Um, both you and Banjo were having um, in the Discord a few weeks ago that was spawned out of a conversation that Banjo and I had on online here um, with uh, or about incentives, and that that kind of goes back to consumerism a little bit. Um, and if I if I remember correctly we were talking about book publishers and the incentives for book publishers to either publish or not publish a decent, a decent piece of literature. Um, and Banjo and I disagreed on, you know, how do we, how do we change what's being put out? But I think that that conversation kind of reframe it a little bit. How do we change what kind of ads are being shown to us, whether or not ads are being shown to us? You know, why, why is it that we kind of have to answer the question of why so many ads are being shown to us off first off right um so I, I i don't know if you have thoughts on that elias but it's an i think it's an interesting or it's it's at least one approach yeah i think i because once again this gets into kind of what do you what do you do with these things and i do believe that the the biggest thing that you can probably do for these companies is change the incentive structures for them because they're companies and they have to follow what makes them money. You know, it's, it's the basis around which we've built our capitalist system for better or for worse. And in situations such as these, where we are the product that's being served up to advertisers, the only way that you're really going to get that to change is if, you change the incentive structures behind them because I mean, as of right now, and there's no real way for these app developers, um, these websites to monetize effectively without ads. I mean, if you want to look, talk about TV for a second, just look at how many ads on TV are for medicine. I think that's like, Medicine, Google cars are the three things that show up on Hulu and how much of our television is subsidized by the medical industry uh, and how how many fewer channels would we have 
if you didn't have someone like the medical industry subsidizing television for the rest of us. And so if we don't want to be subsidized by big pharma, we have to think about, okay, well, how can we change this structure so that we don't have to rely on big pharma in order to get the content that we're consuming? Well, uh, on a certain level, I'm not sure it's in, it's about entirely removing ads from our life. I, I think in theory, they can bring some value. There are certainly products out there that I have I have purchased that I would not have known about otherwise if I had not seen an ad. Um, but it, it, I think there's something about the incessant nature of it, and and you know what, the way ads are designed and start to take over that that I think I'm I'm concerned about. Well, like ad- advertising is not a sin, right? Like there's no, you know, there's no right. thou shalt not make commercials in in the Old Testament. That's that's not a that's not a thing. But I think we we live in an age that is so governed by economics. And I I think I'm I'm really speaking out of my hat here. So this may be 100% not true. Um but it it feels like a product of the Cold War where we divided the world into two types of people, you know, uh, of, of communists and capitalists. Uh, and it, these were the only two ways to see the world. Is, and, and both of those two ways to see the world are economic structures, right? Um, and so we've divided the world into these purely economic metrics. Either you're a communist or a capitalist. Now, now we get a little more finicky and you might be a socialist or if you're really out there, you might be an anarchist, um, but you're still defining yourself in terms of that capitalist, communist, economic the structure. Economic structure, yeah. And the truth is, that's just not how we're designed. I mean, I, I don't think you can say, uh, I don't think you can point to anywhere in in the course of human history and say that you know what makes man is that he is an economic being. You know, um, you can say that we're made for work. Uh, and we're made for labor, um, but I don't think we're made. F- we're designed. You know, I don't think we're at our uh, at our best defined inside the economic structure, right? And I'll just I'll just show you what ads work on me, so that you know who, <laughs> you know who you're dealing with. Um, because I think one of the things that I was struck by as I was looking at the ads that worked on me is. Wow, I'm a sucker for an ideal. Like, don't don't appeal to me on anything other than philosophy. Um, but if as soon as you touch the philosophy button, I'll buy your product. If if you sell your philosophy to me the right way, I'm in. And you tell me it's a philosophy and not a product, you got me. Um, so this is uh, this is a beer I purchased um, this this week. Um, it was pretty pretty good. I don't think we're gonna get a sponsorship or anything, so I think I can probably tell tell folks what the beer is. Um, so uh, your what what is the name of the beer for the for the folks that can't see? For the folks who can't see, it's uh, it's called Flying Dog is the is the brand, and the particular beer is called the Truth. Oh, so they're not just selling a philosophy; they're they're selling the truth. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the ad. It says, blessed be the truth teller, the one who tells us not what we want to hear, but what we need to hear. When the world seems upside down, we count on him to remind us we're standing on our head. 
So if you crave the truth, spend a night with this high-octane Imperial IPA. We promise it will keep you honest. And what really stood out to me about that ad is there is no description of what is in this can at all. You have no idea what kind of beverage you are purchasing except that it's an Imperial IPA. There's no flavor profile. There's no, there's no ingredients. There's no hints or, or, or clues to what, what the flavor is you're going to get when you crack into it. But for someone like me, when he goes, Oh, it's about the truth. I, Hey, I like the truth. I'm a big fan of the truth. Me and the truth are pals, or I'd like to think so. I better get this beer. That works on me. And I'm a little embarrassed to say that. Um, well, that's funny to me because an ad like that, I'd look at that and go, these people are full of themselves. Put the can down and go to find something. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And it's totally a personal, like it's a personal preference thing, right? Like it's just, you know, it's, it's, you know, we, we did a whole episode about what does your, what do your heroes say about who you are, right? Well, you know, what do your, what do your products reveal about who you think yourself to be? You know, apparently I think I'm a truth teller or at least that I want the truth. That seems or, nice. See, this is, I, when it comes to ads, the, those types of ads are the, are kind of the ones that I dislike the least. Like when I think, I mean, so ads were, are going to have a different purpose depending on which side of the screen you're on. If you're on the other side of the screen and you're producing the ad, you want that ad to convince people to choose your product over other products. However, you can do that, whether that's by ideology, philosophy, or by products. When you think about as a consumer, what do I want from an ad? What you really, or what I feel like people should want is they want something that's going to show them a great new product, explain to them the reasons why it's a great new product, and then convince them to purchase that item. Because ads serve as information as far as I'm concerned. They they help inform your decision to buy. And when ads can hide how quality or worthwhile their product is behind um, philosophy or uh, more common today, I would say, though I would say that the philosophy and ideology one is probably coming up fast in our world today, is just how, how does it make you feel? You know, how does the advertising company want you to feel? And I, I kind of feel like both of those are, are really unbeneficial to consumers because it's not talking about here it's a quality product or here it's so cheap. It's here is how you're going to feel or how we want you to feel or, hey, here's this ideology or this philosophy that you agree with in your life. We're going to play to that and say, if you believe these things, then you should buy our product because we believe these things too. It doesn't matter if it's a good product or not. And I think that that's what we're all wanting to some certain extent when it comes to consumerism um, is we're wanting to feel we don't want to waste our time with bad products, whether it's in our environment, we don't want to clutter our house with 
things that we don't enjoy or um, whether it's just the economy as a whole. We have so many cheap, low quality products these days. Um, and how much of that is because they can hide it behind advertising and they're good enough that we don't notice. But if, you know, if we actually knew what was behind this thing, how would our beer preferences change? How would um, the other things that we buy change? If it was just, you know, here are the reasons our product is good and better than the other products. I don't, I don't agree. I, I don't, I don't agree. I, I think that our, um, I don't think we're wired necessarily to, I don't think all of us are wired to, well, if this is the better product, this is the one that I'm going to buy, right? I think that's a very rational approach, um, but I don't think it's true. Uh, and I know that for me, it's not true because I, so for example, um, I'm a coffee addict and I will admit that on air as an addiction and it is nothing more or less than that. Um, like most coffee addicts, I can tell the difference between good coffee and bad coffee. Um, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what coffee you put in front of me. I'm going to drink it, and I really am not going to care. And honestly, the probably the thing that's going to just affect it is what's in front of me, right? Um, so, so what if you have two options in front of you, though? Like, in, in within you know. I could have this really crappy coffee now. I could wait 10 minutes and have an incredible cup of coffee. Well, that's just a matter of, that's a matter of um, impulse control, right? But watch this. But, watch but this. You, so you say that, you say that, I guess the implication being you'll, you'll wait for the decent cup of coffee theoretically. Theoretically. But if you did this instead, if you said, here's a not so great cup of coffee that your best friend has spent six months designing just for you, right? Uh, he's been growing he's the beans. A bad cup of coffee. He's been growing the beans. He roasted it himself. He's done all this. This is for you, right? This has been designed for you. And I know that's a bad cup of coffee, right? And meanwhile- Oh, I feel so bad for your friend. There's a lavazza on the other side of the table. And, you know, it's in a perfect glass. It just came off the espresso machine. I'm going to go with what my with what my friend made, right? Um, just because it's the right thing to do, right? It's it's it, regardless of whether or not which coffee is actually better. I'm going to go with the coffee that my friend made. Um, so I guess I guess part of the question there though is what does it mean better, right? Because mm -hmm. if you are, you know, we have a whole concept in our society of brands supporting ideas. I mean, this this episode is aptly timed are you familiar with the budweiser scandal no what's the budweiser Everything scandal on there um so they they had a transgender representative oh okay yeah advertise for them um for women's i think women's day or i, I can't remember exactly the circumstances but it, it was like it was a total mockery essentially of women um by by a male who thought He's a woman. Um, and so over the span of, of just a few days, and at this point it's been a few weeks, Budweiser sales have dropped by like 26% or something. Like it's been, it's been 
the most successful don't drink Bud Light campaign probably in the history of beer. And did they do um, are there are is the rainbow cans? Is that right? I I don't it? know if that was them or not. Um so then this last week they came out and said, Oh, we, we disavow that campaign entirely. It wasn't actually even a campaign, it was just one post by it got approved by someone that is that we was that was like a temporary hire. Like they had this whole list of excuses, you know, mm-hmm. they're gone, they're fired, blah blah blah. And so now the left is is saying, oh, they disavowed our transgender person. Now they're boycotting the brand too. So they've they're continuing to lose sales. Like yeah. it's it's quite possibly, I mean, in the span of less than a month, they've just completely crushed their entire brand. And they they may recover. I, I don't know. Well, it's but it's interesting. It's interesting that yeah, it's it's a beer that they own a, a large number of brands. But you know, Anheuser Busch, the company behind them, owns a large number of brands. But the Budweiser, Bud Light, their most common ones, are not known to be the greatest beers on the planet. Mm-mm. Nobody says this is the best beer on the planet. They are already purchased in large quantities. Um, and people stop purchasing them for a ideological reason rather than for a... No, nobody woke up and went, oh, you know what? I didn't know this was already not a great beer. I definitely don't want it now. Yeah. Right? And you, But you're touching on an, an interesting point. And Elias, I don't know what you would think about this, but... Nowadays, there's this there's this really bizarre phenomenon where we talk about our personal brand, right? We talk about, well, you know, I, I can't buy that shirt or I can't buy this product because it doesn't fit my brand. But uh, and so, kind of what happens with with something like um, like this Budweiser thing is, you know, someone uh, right now, let's say on the left, someone on the left might say. Um, well, I was drinking Budweiser, but now I can't drink Budweiser because it, it Budweiser doesn't fit my personal brand, right? Because if I'm seen drinking a Budweiser, then people will say, oh, you you support whatever it is Budweiser supports or, or you are complicit in whatever sin uh, Budweiser, Budweiser is complicit in. Um, and so we've, we've very strangely, very oddly – married product and ideology a hundred percent together um to the point that we're they're indistinguishable in our minds um and i don't really know what to make of that or or how to get around it my thought is i think we need to, to back away from the economic idol we've constructed see but i would say that it's not the economic idol that's brought us there. If you want to ask yourself what brought us to that point, it's ads that are not about the quality or the features of a product. It's advert ads that are trying to build brand loyalty through philosophy. And how does it make you feel? You know, we become attracted to brands because, you know, originally and I think probably Apple's the greatest example of this. When did Apple become a cult? It's when they became so effective at advertising their products. Uh, and then they they roped you in with their advertisements about how the iPod makes you feel or how the iPhone makes you feel. And now they've got this super closed, built together ecosystem that once you have one product, all the other products make more sense too. And, but it all starts there with that advertising that's not about the features, 
It's about ideology and how does the product make you feel? And so we get to this place where brands become all important for our own personal identity. I think it's, it's when we make businesses more than a business, you know, when we, and the example with the coffee, you try that coffee, even if it's bad coffee, because it's your friend. And I would hope also that you would give your friend advice about this coffee tastes like garbage. I want your coffee because you're my friend and I care about you. But also, we, we can do better than this. As soon as you start thinking of the business as your friend, that becomes dangerous. You know, you're willing, you're willing to put up a lot more from a friend than you are from a business. And so when you think of a business as a friend, you're allowing them to get away with more than they should. You become less effective at, quote unquote, voting with your dollar, you know? If this brand is really not innovating or making quality products in the way they were, you know, how easy is it for me to spend my money somewhere else that's actually making quality products um, as opposed to just continuing to support this brand that I have become personally invested in? You know, if they do poorly, and once again, I think you can probably see this most clearly with Apple Nutheads. I will defend this company because an attack on them is an attack on my own personal brand. And if they're doing poorly, that must mean that I'm doing poorly too because I've ingratiated brand identity as a part of my own personal identity. Uh, And I think that's kind of, it's not economics is the problem. It's we've gotten away from thinking about these things like business in pure economic terms for good and bad. So supporting businesses when they're doing the economically right thing to produce good product, but also not supporting businesses when they're not doing things that are in the best interest of their consumers, whether that's lobbying or they are building ecosystems around their products that make it hard to switch or repair. Um, yeah, I see. That's a that's a good point that you make about um, the difficulty of separating uh, a brand, you know, as a as a friend uh, or or like having that line. I think that's a really good point. And the way that we are are unable to distinguish those things. I think I think you're making a really good point, um, and and thinking of economics as as the science that it is, as the um, it, you know when one could argue the branch of philosophy that it is. I mean, it's a hard science in in some sense, but it's still you know, phil- philosophical at, at some degree. Um, recognizing economics for what it is, um, I think we have this tendency maybe particularly in America, but maybe it's just globally, but we have this tendency to think that, that the economic structure is just in integral to, uh, how we make sense of the world. If that makes sense. Like, like there isn't a way to make sense of, of, of the world unless you put it in an economic structure. Right. And there are only two possible economic structures, right? Capitalism and communism. (laughs) Um, but I, and, and 
those are prevalent enough that I that I think there's a reason that we've done that. Um, but I think one skill that we need to be able to learn as men and women living in a 21st century late stage capitalist society is kind of what you're saying to be able to separate ourselves from our products and from from who we are as people and i think part of that process is recognizing that at our core as human beings we're not motivated by economics like that is that is not our primary motivator or it shouldn't i don't i don't think it should be our primary motivator i think it can be a strong motivator um but i don't think it should be the the primary and so when we tell Go ahead, JJ. I, I had a friend tell me at some point he was he was getting a job in sales, and he told me, um, you know, one thing one thing he learned was people make a decision emotionally, and then they try to justify it rationally. So at the end of the day, they think they made the decision rationally because that's how they've justified it, but they made the decision emotionally before they ever were rational about it. And some people, to to greater or lesser extent, right? So some people can be more rational about something, but in general, people make a decision emotionally when it comes to buying a product or or feeling like they have to have a certain product. Well, even if we're thinking about just the definition of economics, economics is the study of the choices that people make under the effects of scarcity. People with unlimited want, want a limited number of items. And how do we distribute that amongst the people? And when you think about economics in that term, it sort of becomes the basis for most human interactions, Um, whether that is, you know, actually economically in terms of how you're going to spend your money to go purchase things, but also, you know, some economists, uh, especially in the Austrian school, will take it all the way. Uh, And von Mises actually makes the claim that economics is the study of human decision-making and is the foundational science behind all things. Now, I don't know how far you can go with that part, and von Mises is a little bit full of himself as far as I'm concerned. But I think that there's something there to say that there, at the very least, there's no escaping economics. Everything is economic in the sense that everything is done in a finite period of space and we have unlimited wants, whether that's to go buy things or to go hang out with our friends. Because if you go hang out with your friends, your time is a limited resource and you have to choose how long you're going to spend with friends. If I spend time with friends, I don't have time to clean up my house or get this work item done or do repairs on my house. You have, you're still making those calculations even in the social sphere where things aren't necessarily on their surface economic in nature. So while certain things about the economic model uh, specifically aren't necessarily the end-all be-all because measuring stuff is hard and the things that we use to measure other things tend to not be perfect and don't capture everything that we want. At the very least, you can't escape economics. Everything becomes economics to a certain extent 
because there's no escaping it. Every interaction that you have is to some extent economic, if that makes sense. I see, I see what you're I see what you're saying. I think I think my argument would be to my my push would be to have an, an Augustinian view of economics uh, in the sense of uh, you know a series of rightly ordered loves, right? So you know at the beginning of the uh, medieval Renaissance period, one of the things that's that's being discussed is which which comes first? Is it faith uh, or is it theology or is it philosophy? Um, which of these methods of learning comes first? And there's a great debate over, well, do you use your philosophy to justify your theology? Do you use your theology to justify your philosophy? Um, can both be compatible? Where's our starting point? And you get all over the place with that. Um, by and large, what becomes the most effective system, at least in the reformed world, is essentially to say that um, philosophy is a necessary science but it must submit to theology um, or to the scripture, right? So we don't we don't govern our theology by what our philosophy is. We govern our we govern our philosophy by what our theology is. Um, but they are they're able to work together uh, cohesively. Similarly, with economics, as as we might say, a branch of philosophy. Um, if we have economic problems that we need to solve or, or problems that we can look at in an economic way, I think we first need to make sure that we are ordering ourselves by saying, well, I am, I am first and foremost not an economic being, but I am first and foremost a God-honoring being or I am a, a spiritual being. My first relationship is not with, with the human beings around me and the economic structure that, I'm, that I exist in. My, my first order of being has to do with my relationship to God. Uh, and by understanding what that relationship is, then I define those things that are around me, right? And immediately that takes it out of an economic context. Even though we, can, we could speak of an economy with God, right? We could, we could talk about that. Um, but that, wouldn't, that can't be our first relationship with God. There's no, there's no bartering with God, right? There's no, there's no trade that we make with God. Um, and I think with that being the case, we have to – That I, I would say that that reorders our relationships with one another where I, I don't primarily see you and JJ as people with whom I can make an economic transaction, right? Um, but first and foremost as people made in the image of God uh, with whom I shared the duty of glorifying God. Um, does that make sense, or am I am I rambling? No, I, I I think you're right, but I feel to a certain extent that the conversation is moving away from where it was because at at the end of all things, our purpose is to love and glorify God in everything that we do. But specifically, we're talking about ads and consumerism right now, and making the argument that we need to move away from an economical view of those things to looking at it in uh, a different light, um, which in your, uh, if, excuse me, if I'm interpreting this wrong, which from what you said looks like uh, ads, at least what works for you is ads that are based around ideology 
and philosophy. And that is a part where I don't think that you can get away from the economic nature of the situation because it is very much transactional. Uh, are you going to pay your attention to the ad? And are you going to do what the ad tells you to do? And lastly, is that ad and how that ad has made you feel about that brand going to affect other economic decisions that you make down the line with that company? And I think when you look at it, when you're looking at this in particular, there's no escaping the economic context. We have to examine our personal incentive structures. We have to look at the business's incentive structures and say, well, if we think that such and such an ads aren't good and helpful, which I don't think that we have settled on here, what ads are good and helpful. Um, but if we're wanting to change ads to become more good and helpful or change the platforms that host most of the ads we see, uh, especially online, we have to think about how can we incentivize those companies to produce ads that are more beneficial for the end user. Because um, at the end of the day, they have to make money to keep the lights on. And if advertising is what's going to do it for them, that's what they're going to do. There's this really interesting thing that happened um, when tobacco companies were banned from producing commercials. They were spending millions of dollars on commercials to convince people to purchase their cigarettes over others. When the federal government came through and regulated and said, you're not allowed to produce ads anymore. Surprisingly enough, the tobacco companies were excited about that because they knew that the people who were going to buy their product weren't going to change because once again, they were addicted. You know, they're going to keep buying cigarettes regardless of what the government tells them because they've cultivated an addiction at this point. And so they benefited from this by not having to spend ads that were essentially stealing customers away from them. But they couldn't stop when it wasn't regulated because if they weren't advertising, their consumers would get pulled away to another cigarette brand. And that's just one way in which the incentives that were faced weren't ideal for either the population as a, in general or for the companies themselves. But because of the incentive structures around advertising, they had to keep pouring money into wasteful and depending on how you want to feel about tobacco and them advertising in general, for the population as well, it was negative. But then once we changed those incentive structures around advertising for tobacco companies, things began a lot better for the general population. You know, the number of people smoking went down. And also, the cigarette companies were making more money at this point because they weren't having to waste money on advertising. Now, I'm not saying that a flat ban on advertising for anyone is a good idea. Like I said, advertising is information. And in the age of information, information is important. And knowing what to do with it is important. And so I'm always going to advocate for how can we make the information that's coming out and disseminating to the people, how can we make that information as good as possible so that when they're spending their money, they have 
every opportunity to succeed. Now, obviously, people are going to continue to make bad decisions. We're fallen creatures, and fallen creatures make bad choices with their money. But I want to see it so that they're no longer, uh, I, for lack of a better term, being tricked by advertisers into buying things they don't really want and don't really need with money they don't really have. Um, and you can do that on an individual basis. But I think that in this specific situation, since we're dealing with businesses, it would be best because most, most of the most vulnerable, I would argue, with advertising are people who are not going to readily make that change on them on their own to be more conscious about their ads. You know, the vast majority of the American population isn't going to care enough about that. And getting them to care, I would I would probably argue will never happen. See, that's where any topic. That's where I disagree. Is I I I think the more that we put our trust in companies to do the right thing, in businesses to do the right thing, in organizations to do the right thing, it's never gonna work. Um not oh, that, absolutely. So I don't think there's any I I, I think it's fruitless to say, well, what we need to change here is the, the system of incentives, right? Because then we haven't changed any thoughts and minds, right? We've only said- but, we, but the companies do have to change. If the incentives change, the companies have to change. Well, but then they haven't really changed. This is my argument. Here's my argument. If we change the incentive structure, we haven't actually changed anything. Because what, what the company desired at the beginning was money. Right, that's their desire. They want money. Right, right now they're doing it in a way that is unethical. Let's say, then if I change the incentive structure to make it so that the way that they get money is more ethical, they still just want money. They don't actually want anything that's better for a customer. They just they're they're just going to get the money. Right. I think we need to move away from thinking that we need to get people to change the incentive structure. Because then we change systems, we don't change hearts, we don't change minds, and we continue to corrupt what we have. I think we need to we need, we need to say, look, we can't focus on a system. We have to focus on hearts. We have to focus on minds and say, look, we need we don't need a an economic change. We need a spiritual change, right? We need a soul change. So, okay, so you're saying. The, the the soul of the company so called needs to change and does should no 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 I'm not saying the soul of the company should change I'm saying the souls because of the people within the company need to change okay so maybe maybe this is where our conversation got off the rails last time we had this talk was I I I agree yes the the, the folks in the company their souls should change and and the folks buying the products their souls should change and that that's something that can happen at a ground level. When I'm talking about changing the incentive structure, though, I'm talking about any company as a conglomerate of people, regardless of those people's ideas, for those people to come together and for a company to work, that company has to make money, period. doesn't matter whether, the, whether you live in the most ideal society or not. If, if, if a group of people weren't trying to make money together, it wouldn't be a company, mm -hmm. right? They could be a club or something trying to put out a great product. You know, there's, there's, I'm, I'm, I'm a member of, say, a disc golf club here. They make no money, 
but they they put out a great product for me. They put on tournaments for disc, disc golf tournaments and stuff. I can go play. It's a ton of fun, right? And the way they approach that is very different than a company that is they that by their very existence is attempting to make money. So when I say change the incentives, part of changing the incentives, yes, is changing hearts and minds. Because if my if my mind is different because I'm I have a different belief about the products I should have, right? So I you know I something about me as an individual changes because I'm a Christian, I'm going to buy different products. And that will change the incentive of the company who are going to then put out a product that theoretically should more match the largest number of customers out there. So if the largest number of customers out there, you're exactly right, have their soul changed, the incentive structure has changed. So if you, apart from the people, if you take it to the structured level of you have corporations with incentives, it, it, it's going to mirror what's going on on both sides. But I so think I that's, I I think that's a communist. That's what the communists try to do. The communists say, well, if we, if we reset the structure of society, if we reset the incentive structure on a broad level, then we'll get everybody to work together towards the common goal. Right. Right. That's, well, that's I, what that is. Right. So, if, but we I'm, don't, I'm want not entirely that. sure about that, but also I'm, I'm, I think I think that's going in a different direction than what we were talking about, though. I'm not entirely sure exactly what how that aligns with exactly what we're talking about here. Because when I when I when I talk about say changing an incentive, I mean I should put out an app that where the incentive isn't have the most eyeballs on my screen at any one time. That that's a very personal thing that I'm talking about, right? If I put out an app that unlike one of the big social media companies mm-hmm. says, I don't care how much time you spend on the app, I do need you to use the app to certain to a certain extent in order for me to justify existing, right? So there's a certain level of, of use I need. But if my if the way I sell ad- advertisements on there is not based on the amount of time you spend looking at it, the incentive has changed for for me. Right, I've changed my own incentive. So, like, it's not like it's not like I'm saying we need to go mandate this at a federal level. I'm very, I'm, I'm not for that because yeah. you're right. Like that, that would be authoritarian. Whether it's it's a authoritarian right or authoritarian left, that's still authoritarian, and I, I'm not a fan of that. But when I say the incentive structure needs to change, I'm saying someone needs to figure out a way to produce a product that doesn't rely on selling people's time. Do you mean? Do you mean specifically if, if, in? You mean specifically in like the app tech world, or just in? General? Oh yeah, in just in general. But also, I, I'm thinking in the app tech world because we this we got to this conversation several several weeks ago through the tech conversation we had. So, and, and just looking in the tech world because I'm that's what I'm most familiar with. Majority of apps right now require that you spend more time on their apps in order to justify their existence to advertisers in order to sell those ads. You have so to stay that in that money. app for them to make Correct. money. Right. Correct. Just like so, on TV, you know, you got to keep watching TV in order to watch Correct. Ads. If everyone, if everyone turns off their TV for a few weeks, you know, they, the, the, the big channels will go bankrupt, right? They're, they're not able to produce the product without selling the ads and they have to justify selling the ads based on their views well, I think 
I think the issue with any grassroots effort, not to say that people shouldn't do it. I would love to see more apps, more online spaces that don't prioritize advertising as a means to make money. But the issue that you run into is simply how scalable your platform becomes when you include ads. The reason Facebook uh, and Google were able to get so big so quickly with such a small number of employees has to do with the fact that they're relying on ads for that revenue. It makes expanding super cheap and simple. Um, And so in that situation, I think that there's a good chance where you would require a government mandate of some type. I'm not smart enough to know for sure what that is. But if if you're not, you can have other people come into the space but they'll never overtake the behemoths because the behemoths are relying on that advertising revenue. And there's a reason that they're relying on that advertising revenue. It has been the best track in order to generate a ton of wealth super fast. And in a competitive environment, if they're, if another company is handicapping themselves at this level and saying, we're not going to rely on advertisers, then they'll never grow in the same way and will probably end up getting put out by one of these companies that are. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. All right, well, on that note, we uh, really appreciate you coming on, Elias, and uh, we, we look forward to having you on again in the future. All right, on to the next challenge. Um, just a reminder, challenges last for 10 days. That's Monday through Friday for two weeks. Um, they are simple daily tasks to grow us as men. Um, and this next challenge, Banjo, I'll go ahead and let you introduce it. It was it was your idea. Yeah, so uh, I'm excited about this challenge. Uh, kind of going back, uh, I think to our, I think it was our very first, I don't know if it was our very first challenge, uh, but one of our earlier challenges uh, was was spending time in scripture uh, and we were uh, we were reading through uh, Psalm one every day. I think was our was our initial. Uh, was that our first challenge, JJ? This is episode ten. We've I been think, doing this for a while now. Yeah, it was our first or a second because we also did the honor journal challenge pretty early on. That's right. But yes, early so challenge. One of our initial challenges uh, was spending time in scripture. Uh, this is this is a challenge, kind of going going back to that. Um, so I've been spending some time uh, studying. Um, Old Testament covenants and, and Old Testament um, uh, traditions um, in, uh, in in kind of a covenant theology setting um, and taking particular interest in uh, the lives of the kings, particularly Saul, particularly David, um, just because I think they're really interesting uh, literary figures. And I'm, I'm just kind of studying them on that level. Um, but one of the things that I thought was really interesting was one of the expectations for uh, a king once they became, uh, once they started leading Israel, is, is kings were supposed to write out their own copy of God's law. Um, so they would have written out their own own copy of the scriptures um, by hand, and it would have been their their copy that they had. And the reason that they did that was. You know the the king of Israel uh, who is ruling by God's law uh, should should know God's law uh, backwards and forwards should know the history of his people backwards and forwards. Um, so my suggestion for this uh, for this challenge or my my challenge for this 
is not to do the entirety of scripture in uh, by hand. Uh, in two weeks. In two you weeks. Have. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we're not monks. Um, I'm sure there's there's something to be profited by that. But um, my challenge uh, for us is uh, let's do let's write out a chapter by hand uh, every day. Uh, it doesn't have to be um, from any particular book of the Bible, um, but I think it needs to be longer than a verse. Like I think it needs to be a good uh, chunk of scripture so you're getting the whole context. Um, so any chapter could be a psalm, could be something out of the New Testament, uh, could be um, some Old Testament story, um, whatever it is you think is going to be uh, helpful and profitable. Um, and I'll be interested, JJ, as we talk, to to see what are the different parts of Scripture that we choose and what are the different things that we get out of it. Yeah, I think I, I honestly have not really thought about what portion of Scripture I want to delve into at this point. So that's something I need to be thinking about today and tomorrow so that I can be ready Monday. Um, yeah. And it, it's interesting because, because yeah, the old Testament Kings would have been obviously doing pieces of the Torah and then, uh, some of the prophets and, and wisdom literature. But, uh, yeah, we have the new Testament available to us and in everything that is available there. And I think for young men, especially there's a lot to be gained from, the letters of Paul, especially uh, writing to Timothy. Um, that's something that I have found to be helpful for me as a young man. Um, so I, I might end up looking looking at some of those. Yeah. I that's think just I'm the gonna, first instinct, though, so we'll see. I think I'm probably going to split the difference. I'll probably do one week in the Old Testament and one week in the New Testament. I'd like to write out some of the shorter letters. Um, my church has been studying some of the shorter New Testament letters uh, and have, I've just yeah. been kind of blown away by the depth and of the riches there. And so uh, I'd like to, I'd like some, to spend some more time in those, those portions of scripture. I, I like that idea the, the splitting of the weeks um, that gives some good opportunity to really delve into uh, different aspects of scripture. Well, on that note, um, I think this is a good place to end the next to end this this challenge. Um, I look forward to seeing what folks have to say in the Discord. I encourage you if you have not done a challenge up to this point, um, go ahead and start doing it. Um, go get yourself a journal or something. Just uh, they're at Walmart or Target or, or whatever store is near you in whatever part of the country you're in. Um, and uh, I look forward to to seeing everybody's results from this. Yeah, we'd love to see more folks on the on the Discord uh, join in on the challenges. It's a lot of fun to see everybody team up on on those. We'd love to get a big old crowd going for this next one. This has been the Forging Honor podcast. Music and production is by Elliot George. For more information about what we do or to learn how to get involved, visit our website at forginghonor.com. If you enjoy the show, make sure to like, subscribe, and give us a rating to bring others into the Forging Honor journey. On our website, you'll find information on how to do the challenges alongside us, as well as links to the many resources we mention in the show. And we do make a small amount from any purchases you make through our website links, so thank you in advance. Thanks for taking time with us today. We hope you'll take up the work alongside us and join us in the task of forging honor. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.